Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Does user-centered design at the forefront of ubiquitous computing, big data, and dynamic visualization excite you? As the leader in predictive marketing analytics, according to Forrester Research, MarketShare is a fast-growing startup building a world-class user experience team of interaction designers, front-end developers, visualization experts, and user researchers. If you have a strong background in application design and user experience, submit your resume at marketshare.com careers. That's marketshare.com careers. Hi, this is Laura, and I'm your host for UX Radio. In this episode, I'm talking with Peter Morville, president and founder of Semantic Studios, a leading information architecture and user experience consulting firm. Peter is best known for helping to create the discipline of information architecture, and he serves as a passionate advocate for the critical roles that both search and findability play in defining the user experience. We talked today about how he got started in information architecture and began to create a real connection between the physical organization of library information and the online world. In fact, this connection ultimately led to the famous Polar Bear book by Peter and Louis Rosenfeld called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. Here's how he got started. I was actually born in Manchester, England. Uh, but we moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old, so I learned to speak American real fast. Uh, so I, you know, I mostly grew up in Connecticut. I uh, went to college, did an English literature degree, graduated, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, went home and lived with mom and dad and uh, started researching future careers. Uh, I came up with all kinds of crazy ideas from working in publishing to being a pharmaceutical sales rep to being a hospital administrator and every time my parents would just laugh at me and uh, and finally I there was one day I was wandering around inside a library and uh, and sort of saw this this one of those little old books and it was called careers in library science and it had never even occurred to me that there was were careers in, in right. library science um, but I looked through the book and at the same time I'd been doing a lot of kind of, I've been getting into computer programming and some of the early computer networks, um, CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL, and uh, it just occurred to me that there was some connection between what had been happening in organizing information in libraries, physical information, and, and what was starting to happen in the online world. And that was kind of where my interest in going to graduate school and library science came from. And so I went out to the University of Michigan, and that's kind of where, where it all started. What led you to Michigan? You know, I looked at a number of different library school programs, and their brochure was the most sort of forward-looking in terms of really looking beyond the traditional library at uh, how can we apply kind of information organization and management practices uh, to online or digital environments. Uh, the funny thing was that their marketing was ahead of reality. So when I got there. I found myself taking traditional courses in reference and cataloging with, you know, professors who are like 60, 70 years old. And there was definitely a moment of fear or terror there where I thought, I've come to the wrong place, this is, you know. But I, I managed to kind of piece together the kind of education that I was looking for where I could kind of have a, a good launch pad for doing something new. Right, yeah. right. And obviously there's value in those courses, but it's amazing today what the program has become. Yeah, I mean, they, 
it's really become much more sort of multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary, uh, as has information architecture, right? When we first started, we sort of, one of our sort of senses of, of mission was this idea of showing that principles of library science had value in the online environment. But very quickly, we recognized that there were lots of other fields and disciplines that had a lot of value to add as well. And we started learning a lot about human-computer interaction and usability testing. And, uh, and then we sort of started looking at ways that uh, journalism and editorial kinds of skills could play into the work that we're doing. And so I think that the, what's happened in academia with this kind of multi, multidisciplinary approach has kind of been mirrored in the world of practice, kind of recognizing that there's all these different places, areas where we can, we can learn learn from. What was your next thing coming from that? Yeah, so I uh, I met up with Lou Rosenfeld in the program, and, and also uh, one of our professors was Joe Janes, um, uh, who actually went on to found the Internet Public Library. Uh, but the three of us, uh, we spent a lot of time together. We played racquetball together, and, and, and uh, we were kind of some of the folks who were more interested in the Internet uh, at the time. And so they had this company called Argus Associates, and they convinced me after I graduated to kind of join as the first real employee to really try to kind of take it from a hobby to a business. You know, I, I think if there had been larger companies that were offering the kind of jobs, the kind of work that I wanted to do, I would have probably taken that safer route, but there weren't. So uh, I, I'm not an entrepreneur by nature, but I was kind of forced into that. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, over... The period of seven years, we really, you know, grew it from about one one FTE up to about forty people, and uh, it was a very exciting time. And I got the opportunity to work on all kinds of interesting projects for different clients, but then also to get a lot of management experience of, you know, what does it take to grow and manage a business. And so it was a you know a really fascinating experience. So I can imagine since it was pretty small at the beginning, you were doing a lot of information architecture, but probably a lot of the user experience as well. I'm sure there are many things you were doing. Yeah, we, and we didn't, when we first started, we didn't even use the term information architecture. Even when we started using that term, you know, up through writing the Polar Bear book in 1998, we still weren't really using the term user experience. Um, but we, you know, there was a phase where we were doing more you know, what we thought of as kind of full-service web design, and we were involved in some of the coding and some of the, the visual design, and, and then we kind of decided we really wanted to specialize in what we were best at and, and find partners to collaborate with who had the sort of the design or development expertise. So when did you have that moment where you and Lou were like, we have to write this book, and, and this is what we want to communicate with it. Yeah. So Lou had been uh, talking with this woman, Lori Lejeune, who worked at O'Reilly, was an editor at O'Reilly. Uh, and he had sort of pitched her on the idea of a book about information architecture. And, you know, she'd heard him out but hadn't been really excited about it. But then she was going to a lot of the conferences uh, uh, and, you know, working the booth at conferences. And, and she, she sort of came back to us and, and, and she said, you know, what's What's interesting is I've been talking to a lot of people about, you know, what's going on with websites and the the term she used, she said, I feel like I keep hearing again and again the same thing and it's it's the pain with no name. There was a sense of frustration that something was missing but they didn't know what to call it and she's like, I think that might be what you guys are calling information architecture. So we wrote up a proposal and Riley accepted it. It was interesting because what we heard back was 
Tim O'Reilly loved the idea for the book. He wasn't so sure about the term information architecture. And so our attitude was like, well, we're sticking with that term. Right. <laughs> Let's do it. So that was really exciting. You know, that, at that period of time, our company was growing very rapidly and we were working evenings and weekends to get the book done. And uh, it was just uh, kind of one of those moments in your life where it seems like everything's happening at once. And um, just getting to do an O'Reilly book at that point in time was so exhilarating. It's an amazing book. A lot of the talks here at the IA Summit are touching on the new spirit of information mm -hmm. architecture. What are your thoughts about yeah. that? So, you know, in our community over the years, there's always been this tension around defining the damn thing, right? You know, we even have our own hashtag, you know, DTDT. And there's definitely been some negative side to that in terms of the political turf wars and trying to, you know, trying to kind of say, well, my term's more important than your term or what have you. But I think there's a very positive side to that that is coming out much more at this, at this particular summit than ever before, which is, first of all, a really important part of information architecture involves framing uh, the challenges for our clients, helping them to understand Maybe this isn't just about web strategy. Maybe it's more about, you know, cross-channel experience strategy, right? Kind of so, so instead of just thinking about a website, we're thinking about a broader experience and a range of touch points. So part of what we do is help people frame a problem or a challenge. Um, but we also need to keep doing that for our own discipline. Carl Fast gave a wonderful talk this morning uh, where he said the fact that we still need to define and frame and explain what we do, that's actually the reason why we have a discipline, right? And it's the same with other disciplines like physics, that the reason why you have a discipline is to try to keep working through uh, these really difficult issues, um, you know, about the, the core concepts and the boundary of the discipline. And so I think it's it's wonderful that you know, we're at the 14th Information Architecture Summit, and we're still wrestling with these issues. I think that that points to the fact that we have a very vibrant field that is still uh, developing and maturing. When you talk about uh, reframing the problem, I wonder, and you've probably experienced this with corporations, sometimes it's challenging to help them understand how to reframe that problem. How have you learned to do that best? I think part of it is... You know, I, I just am always drawn to, you know, I, I guess what you might call systems thinking, right? And it's, you know, whenever someone says, well, we need to fix this web page, I think about, well, how does this page relate to the other pages? And how do people get here in the first place? And, and then I start looking at, well, this isn't so much an issue of, you know, how this page is designed. There are governance issues that are coming into play here. Who's responsible for, you know, kind of uh, measuring the performance of, of this page or site or experience? And so then it's just a matter, you know, once you start asking all of those questions, it becomes a matter of trying to understand, like, what's really important? Where are the levers? Like, where are you actually really going to affect change in the organization? And then what are the clearest ways of explaining that? And sometimes it's, you know, it's uh, kind of a word or phrase or way of kind of capturing the problem. Sometimes it's uh, a visual representation, a map that helps people see things differently. And sometimes it's it could be more about helping people to really sort of see and feel the experience of users, right? Um, so that there's more of a you know, so you can kind of build an empathy for here's what our customers are being forced to go through at the moment, and then here's how we might start to fix that. Sometimes you run into these political constraints, and I think 
those are some of the hardest to overcome. Yeah, yeah. So the Library of Congress story uh, is a is a fun one because when I first started working there and I did an evaluation of their web presence and I was brutally honest and said it's you know there's some really significant problems here. Um, there was a there was a point in time where my report was embargoed and they said we agree with you but this is too sensitive to to share um, around the organization, but. Over the period of several months, that kind of critical review percolated up to the executive committee level, and they made a, a courageous decision that we're going to really change how we work on the web. And and uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be brought back in to help with that. So it's actually a really nice example where you know an organization was willing to hear criticism and then make the changes necessary. Um, I actually think that's that's kind of rare, right? You, you, for every one of those, there's a lot of organizations you can go in and you can tell them what's wrong and they'll thank you and then they won't do anything. So uh, that's a really nice story of how even kind of coming in at sort of a middle level in the organization, there was a kind of a willingness to, to listen and change. Was your strongest relationship with the decision maker or was it kind of grassroots with all of the smaller um, functions within? Well, it started out as more grassroots and which is partly why I didn't have a huge sense of optimism that it was going to have the impact um, that it did when it made its way up to the executive committee and they decided to to really change how they work on the web they appointed the chief of staff of the entire library to sort of chair a web governance board and so I worked closely with him and he provided the political leadership and sort of protection (laughs) to allow me to kind of get my work done properly. I think you can learn a lot from um, failure, and you can also learn a lot from best practices. So I was really impressed with um, the National Cancer Institute, mm. and obviously you got some nice awards along with that. Yeah. What made that so successful? The National Cancer Institute was an interesting, interesting experience for me because there was a when I was brought in, there was already a fairly tight timeline in place. So, you know, I think I did all of that work within sort of a three-month time frame, and it, and it felt rushed at the time. But I had this real sense of, of mission, right? It was, it was a real honor to be working um, with that organization and its content. And I really felt I, I could, you know, when you sort of think about the use case of, of somebody who's just learned that, they've, that they have cancer or that a friend or family member has 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 received that diagnosis and they're coming to this site and they're looking for answers for help for some kind of guidance or hope um, that you know the information architecture of that is so important just helping to kind of helping them to find what they need and in, in the, the the least frustrating way possible I think part of the reason why it was such a big success is that they already had a really good team in place in terms of the the technology side they had a really good designer and they had already worked through some of the difficult content strategy and content management issues they had centralized ownership and management of some of the most important content that the institute um, publishes and so i had a lot of good things to work with uh and and so it was kind of set up for success in that way right when you said that the content was centralized is that uh, who owned that? Was it the communications department, marketing? They had basically set up the the kind of the web team. They were um, housed within the office of communications, and so the the web team and the folks who were responsible for the content were actually co-located in the same you know same floor of the building, and they were you know, they worked very closely together. Uh, and so I think that really helped that project succeed. 
I think it's been amazing to watch the search functionality grow into what it is mm -hmm. today. So share with the audience a little bit about your experience um, with where it began, where it is today, and where you think it's going. In terms of search, serve generally? Yeah, I think in general, or if you want to dive down into, you know, faceted navigation mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah, so search is a, an interesting but very difficult area. I found it interesting enough and important enough that I you know, decided to write a whole book on, uh, about search. It's, it's difficult for a few reasons. One is, you know, a lot, for a lot of sites these days, people are going to Google and they're doing a pretty specific query and they're getting pretty close to the area they want to be on the site in the first place, um, which in, to some degree has kind of marginalized the importance of site search. There are some kinds of sites and applications where sites are just really important and others where it's not as important as it used to be. The other reason why it's difficult is that it's such a huge challenge, right, to design a search interface and a search system that really helps people find what they're looking for. The, the, the kind of the, the old joke is, you know, it's the stupid users, they're using the wrong keywords, right? It remains an extremely difficult and unsolved problem. You know, Google works wonderfully for certain kinds of queries, but I would say that, you know, from my perspective, I think the limitations of Google are becoming more and more apparent with each year, uh, that there's a lot of content that's not accessible via Google. A lot of times more commercial content is coming to the top of results. And one of one of my newer areas of interest, it's, a, it's an area that I've, I've sort of been interested in ever since I went through library school, but I'm, I'm kind of starting to dig deeper into is kind of, you know, it kind of goes on the label of information literacy, right? And, and sort of kind of getting at questions of, I mean, I, I, what I'm concerned about is that, you know, most people don't really know how to search well, and they don't know how to evaluate the sources of information that they do find. So they do a quick Google search, and they kind of just blindly trust what they find. And I think it's hugely problematic. And I know that in my life, Having the benefit of gone through library school, learned how to search really well, um, and then sort of spent my whole career on the web, you know, the fact that I'm really good at searching and at finding, you know, uniquely valuable sources of information helps me understand what's going on in the world, helps me make better decisions, uh, whether it's what products to buy, whether it's uh, whether or not to trust my doctor, what medicines to take. I mean, so I feel like information literacy makes my life better and I feel that that most people in society are really missing out on that and so that's a gap I think that that sort of exists in our education system uh, that really needs to be filled somehow. What solutions do you see in the education system to make that better? I've been working with an organization uh, the, in the past several months called the Center for Inspired Teaching and they do teacher professional development and so I've gotten a little bit more insight into how teachers are trained in the first place, you know, through the certification process and professional development. And I actually think that a big part of the solution is teaching the teachers because they're ultimately the ones who are going to be working with the students. If they don't understand why it's important to know how to search well and how to evaluate sources and if they're not encouraging their students to go out and kind of search for themselves and be more critical consumers of information, I think it's really hard to do it in any sort of add-on way. So I think that ultimately teachers are actually at the center of this, and I'm not, I don't have any immediate plan on how to right. affect that, but I think they are central to, to sort of dealing with this challenge. Where does that take place? Is it maybe middle school? 
Maybe it's earlier. I don't know. I think that there's a place for it all the way through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've been helping our daughters with their homework, right? And uh, math is one of the areas where I end up helping quite a bit. Now, I was never particularly strong in math, and I've forgotten most of what I knew anyway. So, you know, they ask me to help with a particular problem, and, and I'll, uh, I'll say, well, okay, I don't actually know how to do that. Let's go on Google and try to figure out, you know, see if we can find, find out how to do this. And sometimes they'll tell me, well, I already tried that. I already went on Google. I didn't find it. I'll say, okay, well, let's do it anyway. And, and I'm able to very quickly find something that helps us solve the problem. So, you know, they go to Google, but they don't really know how to do the right search to find the answer they need. You know, so this is, you know, this is kind of the middle school age, right? Um, so, yeah, maybe middle school is where it really starts to come into play, where they're, they're actually getting on the Internet, they're doing searches, but they don't really have the skills to, to sort of flourish. Right. And it seems like even uh, just talking out loud with them as you're identifying the steps to say, okay, this is an advertisement. Right. This is not going to give you the information you want. But this, this is a valuable source. Yep. And it, you can trust the source because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. Well, one, one of the interesting things that we talked about with the folks at, at the Center for Inspired Teaching, because they have a number of sort of principles that they try to encourage teachers to follow, and, and they have this sort of idea of, of challenges. And so one of those challenges, you know, could be sort of summed up in the, in the notion of like, don't touch my pencil, right? So it's the idea that as a teacher, when a student's having a hard time solving a problem, don't pick up the pencil and solve it for them, right? Help talk them through it, but have them do it themselves. And the same thing applies in an online environment where it's actually better for me to say, okay, you sit down in front of the computer, let me talk you through it or have you try, but to really get them to kind of go through the process so they remember how, how to do it and how it worked. Uh, so I, I've actually been kind of working on that myself a little bit instead of solving the problem for them, having them go through the process themselves. Yeah, it's that um, tell, show, do, measure kind of right, thing. Right. And, um, when they actually do it, I think, well, for many of us, we absorb it more because we're having the experience yep, firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And, and, and I think that, that that's an interesting dimension from an information architecture perspective. Organizing information for access is one way that we can help people learn and understand and make decisions. But, you know, there's all this interesting educational theory and knowledge about how people learn and how to teach uh, that many of us are ignorant of. And so there's like, that's a whole other domain that we can kind of, you know, sort of draw lessons from and try to figure out how, how can we improve our digital products and services in a way that actually help people um, move beyond just getting the information to actually kind of trying things, experiencing things, and learning that way. So do you use Google or do you use something else um, to do your searches? How, what is your process? So yeah, I mean, I, I use Google all the time, like everybody, but I, I feel like we're missing out. Um, one of my frustrations is the, uh, the walls around academia. Right? The fact that if you're within a university environment, then you have access to uh, all these wonderful journals, uh, databases, that you, know, you have access to the scholarly record. And people in those environments take it for granted. But you step outside that wall, and you have almost no access to that content. And I think that's a problem that's actually been getting worse rather than better. Uh, Ten years ago, you could walk into most academic libraries and access all of that content. You could go to the print journal. You could go to the, the books. Our universities were very open. Nowadays, more and more of that is being digitized. And unless you've got 
the login and password, you're not getting to that stuff. So I think that's a really sad trend, and I feel that we have to find some way. Some of this is happening within the kind of the open access movement, right. but we still don't have. Google Scholar has you know some value, but again, unless you're in one of those communities, you can't actually access the full text of, of many of the articles. Right. So we're really missing out on you know widespread access to the scholarly record. Do you think due to just the economics of the whole thing, they're trying to make some money on the, the amazing content that they have? Yeah, and you know we won't go too far into no. the the um, you know all the problems with the the journal publishers who are making crazy amounts of profits and kind of clinging on to that that model uh, of of publishing and, and sort of a monopoly situation. But I, I think as a society, it's it's in the best interest of our society to figure out how to free up more of that information, and it's happening in bits and pieces now with professors you know, just basically putting their articles out on the web, whether it's legal or not, they just feel strongly compelled to make their uh, content uh, available. But having it be available doesn't mean it's findable, right? It's, uh, we, we don't have an easy way to search across all of that content um, uh, in, in any kind of efficient, uh, easy way. Last year, I took a course, a MOOC course, okay. uh, yeah. through Coursera, um, and it was Stanford's HCI class with Scott Clemmer. And it was such a great experience, and it was one of the first, and we had the peer-to-peer um, evaluation, and they were doing a lot of testing because they were just getting it started, yeah. but it was so great to be part of that, and I was so thrilled that it was available to anyone right. that want, was interested in the yep. topic. Yeah, so there's a couple different thoughts I have about MOOCs. I think they're a fascinating phenomenon. One is that I think... I actually wrote an article recently called Architects of Learning where I talked a little bit about this, that, that the MOOCs actually have an opportunity to maybe try to, to dig into this problem because if I'm, you know, a lot of people who are taking that course are not within an academic environment. So the question becomes, how are the MOOCs going to provide access to the scholarly content that's relevant, you know, to that course? I think that's a challenge and maybe a big opportunity for the MOOCs to try to solve. The other thing that's interesting to me is, I, you know, I, I find... I think we're still really wrestling with, you know, there's there's obvious value of making this 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 kind of education very you know open and available on a very wide basis and for free and so forth. At the same time, there's so much value in being physically together, right, and having a teacher who can uh, who can kind of really respond to you one on one, and you know, so it's a very interesting period in, in education where. There's a lot of hype, right? If you just if you just kind of pay attention to the hype, you think that it's all been it's all changing, it's all being, you know, it, people have the idea. I think that technology is only a piece of it, uh, and and so, uh, you know, the best book I read on this topic was um, by Clayton Christensen, and the book uh, I think his book is called Disrupting Class, and he argues that you know compared to the the, the traditional classroom experience. MOOCs kind of suck. But then he says, but they sort of suck in the same way that the early Apple computers sucked, you know, relative to the IBM mainframe, right? So there's something there that's the seed of, you know, for true disruptive change in the coming kind of decade or so. Uh, So I'm fascinated by what's going on there, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it was an interesting experiment. It was nice that they offered the two different tracks. One's just like listen to the videos, take the quiz. The other was much more immersive. 
and actual des- actually designing the app yeah. by the end of the program. And then you had the peer-to-peer, but they weren't necessarily all skilled in a heuristic review. So you got some like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And then some that were very thorough yeah. and went through you know a set of standards. Yeah. So I think there's certainly a lot to iron out. Yeah. But So what do you see as the next big thing? Yeah, so there have been a lot of kind of ups and downs in the perception of information architecture over the years and at the summits. Um, and I felt that, all, that while within the community there's these constant sense of shifts, um, the broad, the big picture in the, in just in the world of work has been that, that, that the need for information architecture has just been growing and growing. And so on, on sort of my consulting side, you know, I've, I just keep having really interesting work with great clients, and, and so I'm kind of continuing to do that. But I'm, I, I feel like it, I'm kind of at the point where, you know, before too long, I'm going to want to sort of dig into, into, into working on a new book. And even just at the summit, I've been kind of playing over in my mind ideas of, of what, you know, what that means, what it would be about, how to frame it. Um, during Carl's talk this morning, you know, he sort of mentioned the, the, the challenges not of big data, but of small data. And I was thinking that the, that the area that kind of interests me, you could, you could almost sort of call it personal information architecture, uh, which is helping people with with the the information architecture of their personal lives, right? And how they learn and make decisions. So you could talk about it in that small way, but you could also talk about it in a big way, which is what's the information architecture of society, right? What are all of our structures and frameworks and processes for creating and sharing knowledge and and for establishing authority and trust, right? How do we know who to trust, what information to trust? So that's an area that's really interesting to me that's really well outside the normal kind of business information architecture world. That's kind of where I'm being tugged at the moment. That's wonderful. I look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it so much. Sure. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.